Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hello, Andy Nelson. On today's episode, we have invited special effects supervisor Chris Reynolds to talk about Giuseppe Tornatore's Cinema Paradiso, a movie he likes. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Hello. Nice to see you. 
What an extraordinarily great counter-programming pick you have brought us, given your role in cinema, <laughs> Chris. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I've always sort of, funny enough, been drawn to the, um, the more love story type films as my own favorite films, and not, as you would imagine, the, uh, the sort of big action epics with lots of special effects in. Isn't that funny? Maybe, <laughs> maybe I, I've just headed down the wrong career path maybe i should have been a cinematographer or something like that <laughs> we are where we are exactly we are where we are my, my, I, i've spent a living blowing things up and making a big mess basically <laughs> and lots of rain and not making the love stories the, the films that i prefer well some could argue love stories are plenty messy on their own right there's there's a lot of mess that people have to go through with those yes well, before we start digging into Cinema Paradiso and talk about that film, let's talk a little bit about you and your career. You know, special effects is, uh, I think, such a fun uh, and easy way for a people to kind of, uh, especially like, I don't know, me, young young men to kind of fall in love with film because of kind of all the things that they're seeing on screen. You know, what was it when you were young like what was it that kind of captured your eye about uh special effects like do you remember like when you first started noticing it as something that people were doing i left school when i was 16 and i started working in engineering and i don't really remember too much being sort of too involved in thinking that i would end in a, a sort of film working in the, the the business i'm working in now i had an uncle who worked on thunderbirds and he used to come back with stories about that so that's sort of that was part of sort of my early life, but really I was involved in engineering. But I remember what happened when I went to university later in life. I went to university when I was about 20 and a friend of mine said to me late one night, Oh, should we go and see a film down at the local cinema? And, uh, I said, well, yeah, I don't mind, but this is like midnight. And, and apparently it turned out this film was four hours long and it was Dr. Zhivago. <laughs> and, I remember coming, <laughs> and I remember coming out of this film thinking, Oh my God, if I can tell, like, have, be a part of telling a story like that and in, in contributing to people's enjoyment, that is sort of something I would love to do. So even though I was uh, doing architecture at university, it just the seed had been sown in my mind for, for a, a, an alternative career, uh, even at that stage. Uh, and so when I finished my course, uh, I then managed to get a job uh, working in commercials through a friend of mine doing special effects in commercials, because the one thing I was always good at was making things and innovative engineering, which is what special effects is, Sure, really. Yeah. So I so I got a, a, a worked in commercials for about a year, and then I was lucky enough to get a job at the BBC, and I was at the BBC for 20 years, whereas, where I, it was a terrific learning ground for everything. I mean, they just literally threw you in at the deep end. And ever sculpted anything before? No. Right, okay, sculpt up a four-foot set of lips then using all this clay. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was that type of thing. And, yeah, um, so there was a – you literally were thrown in the deep end, which is great because it's a terrific way of learning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, do you remember some of the specific? I mean, obviously, you just talked about a big set of lips, but but other sorts of uh, interesting requests that you had as uh, as an early uh, special effects. Well, at the BBC, there was just like mad things coming through on on a daily basis, from exploding haggises to. Uh, I worked on the Black Adders, which are still quite well known today. Uh, 
uh, and I made the uh, the green, the famous green that he's sort of supposed to have invented, and, and uh, like he's, he's supposed to try to make gold, but he doesn't. He makes a big green splat instead. And so, <laughs> in the story terms of like Black Adder and things, it's quite well known. So I, I had a hand in making that, and uh, and then doors that Rowan Atkinson was thrown through as Black Adder. I worked on a lower low with uh, uh, with all sorts of funny. Uh, bells that dropped over people's heads, giant bells that were dropped over people's heads. And then the classic sort of like machine gun hits and anything like that. So it was a great uh, uh, place to sort of, because you just literally didn't know what you were doing next. On on a Monday and Tuesday, you'd be working on all creatures great and small up in up in Yorkshire with horses uh, crashing through gates. Uh, and then you'd be off to Television Centre to do Top of the Pops on the sort of Wednesday, Thursday. And then, and then you'd be back on sort of like something else on the like a Lenny Henry show, which is a comedy program on a Friday. So, oh my gosh, yeah, there's a lot of a very varied twenty years. What a variety! Yeah, that's incredible, and and that it it ends at some point with the punctuation of a nugget of purest green. Like that is just a fantastic story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It was made out of body filler, car body filler. No kidding. <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. I wish I kept it. It'd probably be worth a lot of money now. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Now, now, obviously, one of the the key things in the world of effects. I mean, not all effects, but but one of the key things that people are always uh, so careful with is is safety. You know, and doing it in a safe way. Uh, obviously, you know, there's you can blow things up and just blow it up. But then the the whole idea of going into effects in a way where people can be interacting with it in a safe way like uh, i mean that's such a critical part of, uh, of this whole process i yeah. mean is that is that kind of a, a whole other sort of learning curve and figuring out okay we can blow this up but what what elements do we need to do to incorporate into that to make sure that it's safe well, everything needs to be planned really i mean we've uh, just been working on a disney uh, job a lot of the things that we do nowadays are the HETV high-end tv work and this is uh, uh, tells the story of the Price Sisters. Uh, it's set in the nineteen seventies in the IRA period, the rise of the IRA. So it's the troubles in Northern Ireland, and uh, we've had various shoot ups on that. And one particular shoot up was in a paint factory. So it all needs to be planned out how you do it, really. So you you figure that the artist is standing here, and therefore these tins of paint need to be done on air uh, because it's an, an air system where you're just literally blowing using compressed air, paint into the air. You can get artists relatively close to that, but anything where you've got sparks or bits of more heavyweight debris need to be pushed further away from artists or stunts. So, I mean, stunts, you can get closer to some of that stuff, but artists, you have to be so careful about uh, about what's around them. And it offers its challenges. Because no shoot-up scene is ever the same. There's uh, one maybe in a warehouse, and one maybe in a paint factory, and one maybe on the street. So plus what they're wearing, obviously that factors into it. Yeah. The- and that is the brilliant thing about our whole business, really. That uh, I mean, I've been doing this forty years now, and uh, and virtually every single day is different. I mean, that's what's lovely. You, you've got unique challenges all the same, all, all the all the time. I mean, a, a rain, rain sequence in the centre of London is different from a rain sequence up in the highlands of Scotland. And, and yet, forty over 40 years, like, what is the effect that you think about over your career in those early days that you think, I was ridiculous for having been involved in a stunt like that way back then? Like, we would never do this. We were stupid and we got lucky. In terms of danger-wise, 
sometimes there's been a few things. I remember I did a First World War battlefield thing, and because you obviously you're learning the whole time. Yeah, and it was involved of there was a about forty or fifty people walking across a field with big explosions going off all over the place. Um, I mean, we'd labelled where all the explosions were, uh, and we told everybody to avoid where they all were. I remember watching it as we were doing it and just seeing one of the artists jump right over the top, or one of the background artists jump right over the top of one of the explosions and thinking, you just can't rely on people's own uh, sense to not do something as stupid as that. And, yeah, we did get lucky that, that the explosion didn't go off. And we did have an element where we could see all the explosions, but there were sometimes it wasn't like 100% that you could see because when you're looking at, along a field, it's difficult to get perspective of where people are. You sort of need to be up high. And even though we were on a scaffold tower, it wasn't quite high enough to to see with 100% safety where everybody was. But it's it's things like that that you learn, really. I mean, and you learn that actually explosions on water, you can get virtually no perspective on explosions on water. So you think the explosion is here, but actually it's probably a lot further away or it's a lot closer to you because there's just no reference to it. But it's a learning curve. All the time it's a learning curve. But you have to balance the learning learning with uh, what's safe. And if it gets to a point where you're not quite sure about it, it's better to not do it at all. And that sometimes does happen. I mean, I still find now that I say, no, we're not doing this. We're not being rushed into this, or we're not doing it like this. We, we're going to we'll do it, but we need to take our time and do it properly rather than try and rush it at the end of the day which all too often happens with special effects sequences. And, and that's actually an interesting uh, point, shifting into kind of like the like the way that effects are handled now. I'm not sure if the state of unions as far as like over here in the US versus over there in the in the UK as far as like the world of effects, if if they have unions over there or not. But I know over here that's kind of a big conversation in the realm of uh, of all the especially this year with the various conversations about unions and the idea that the effects the people working on effects don't have a union and like they're overworked and it's it's so much that they're being asked to do i mean how much does that play into it and and do you feel like things need to be changing well the unions in the uk are not as strong as they are in the us having said that there are agreements between producers and crew really about amount of hours that are worked and those sort of things uh, safety is set in place in terms of like workshop crew do one hour less a day than shoot crew because it's deemed that their work is more dangerous and that they're like they're uh, they, they're in, they're working all the time whereas on a shoot quite often there's periods where you're standing around waiting for somebody to set something up ultimately it comes down to the heads of department like myself to say listen we've been working too much this is dangerous now i need to either get more crew in to cover for this or i need to or we need to stop and have a break for a bit because we can't keep doing this i mean it, it, there's a balance to it all because Sometimes when you're doing smoke and just general smoke and bits and pieces like that, it's not quite so bad. But even on the rain sequence, there's an element of if you get it wrong, something can fall over and hit somebody. So, And there's a danger element to that as well. And that's not even including the explosive pyrotechnic side of it, which obviously needs to be strictly monitored and, and given time and rehearsal time particularly. Earlier on in your career, obviously, you were starting as a beginner. You kind of worked more as a tech, uh, a technician, and then kind of a, a senior technician. 
And now you've kind of worked up into the the title of special effects supervisor in that kind of shift of kind of coming to a place where you're now kind of overseeing all of these different people involved. And and oftentimes there's the there the teams on the on set working. There are also all of these other special effects companies that kind of are hired for you're going to do this particular thing you're going to do that particular thing some people are doing stuff that uh, there's an element on set but a lot of it ends up getting done in post Uh, as the supervisor like juggling all of those different things i mean at what point do you start having these conversations in the process of a project and kind of how do you find that you're like managing all of that to make sure that for the director and the filmmakers that the vision that they have is able to be told in the best way? I mean, sometimes with the special effects side of it, some of it is very simple. Some jobs are very simple. Other jobs need a lot of talking about really, because there's such a crossover now between who's doing what, where and when. So, I mean, what we tend to do is we tend to have a meeting which is a page turn, and we just literally go through an, an effect sequence and we page turn on the effect sequence and go, okay, right, so the, the chocolate spewing out of this person's ear, how are we going to do this? Is this, like, real or is this going to be done uh, uh, as a, a visual effects or, or how are we going to do it? And it's basically a matter of talking about it and sometimes the director will go, well, I'd like to do something for real. Can we do something for real? And, how are you going to do that, Chris? And then I have to come up with a way how we're going to get chocolate to spew out of somebody's ear. I like that's where you go to, chocolate out of the ear. <laughs> <laughs> and some, some jobs, are, uh, there's a lot of, some jobs there'll be literally the chocolate spew out of somebody's ear, then something else happens and something else happens and you have to go through a sequence and just figure out exactly what's happening and who's providing what. And there's a big crossover between visual effects, art department, director, first assistant, and ourselves to figure out and stunts quite often as well in the big action sequences to figure out how what they what everybody needs from each other and that's the exciting thing in many ways it's a i always say to people this business is a bit like working in the army really that you're all lots of departments all coming together for a common cause in many ways you're not working in an environment that's particularly friendly to where you are because you may be working in North Wales, which is pretty remote, and there's not that much there. Or you could be working in Morocco, where there's in the far extremes of Morocco, where there's nothing at all. So you have to be quite resourceful sometimes, uh, and that is that's exciting. It's 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 got a really it's interesting by itself. Do you find? I, I mean, I, I I'm looking at your website, looking at the stuff that you've you've done. Uh, it it feels like you have such a wide variety of. Uh, of effects work that you've done. Do you have something that makes you just really light up when you get a project that comes across your desk? You think, and God, this is, it's it's mechanical effects or it's uh, pyrotechnics or it's atmospherics. Like what what really lights you up when you get a new project? You think I'm, I'm working on a particular set of effects that, that gets me out of bed in the morning. I think I, I like all of it. It's, uh, and I, I like the variety of it. Like is sometimes I won't I've done a shoot-up sequence for two years, and then I'll end up with three or four, one after another. Uh, and then I'll end up doing a few big rain jobs and a big smoke job. And the, and sometimes we get snow. Uh, uh, that's another thing we do in the UK as well. I mean, so I, I think it's, it, 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 there's no one particular thing. It's the variety of the whole area of what I work in is what I really like to do. Uh, I think, in all honesty, probably some of the most interesting jobs I've done have been jobs – involving like battlefield sequences i i worked on a a job called uh, centurion where there was a lot of fighting in that film and uh, and there was bigger crossovers with 
visual effects, figuring out who's doing what and what's happening here and uh, and all those particular things. So, And that was what involved exactly what I was just telling you, a, a page turn. I think that that particular meeting was called Killings and Stabbings Meeting. <laughs> and we just went through about who was being killed and who was being stabbed and what they were being stabbed with or having their head chopped off with. And did we need a rubber axe? Did we need an axe with a cutout of it? And it's going through all those sorts of things, really. And that's uh, it's quite amusing, really, when you sit down. <laughs> like seven or eight hours and go through a whole script was something like Centurion. And there's a lot of special effects in that. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you're right. Those department meetings are always interesting because of the amount of overlap in all of the different departments. Like obviously some of the effects that you want to do affects, okay, well for the costume department, that means we need to have how many, extras of this particular outfit and like you know just all of those different things that people have to discuss not in not just in terms of budget but also in schedule because like you know you're gonna have to change the actor after every take and stuff like that it's yeah well that's an important thing as well yeah 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 i mean how long is it going to take to change the actor how long will it take to put the costume on the actor that has the squid in, it on the, in his chest when he's being shot with a shotgun here so, I mean, I had that conversation about a week ago about a job that's starting in February. So, Chris, how, how often do you look at your own IMDb page? Oh, I can't remember the last time I looked at it. That's good. That's what I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted to hear. One, one of the things, one of the things that we find absolutely wonderfully mysterious about IMDb is, you know, you, you have the page, you have your little profile, and then below that, the algorithm of IMDb has determined what you're, you should be known for as a professional. That's crazy, I know. And I don't think we've ever done this. We play a game called the IMDb game around these parts where we will ask as a form of trivia, can you guess the top four that this performer or professional should be known for? We've never <laughs> done it with someone on this show. And I want to know if you can guess what the algorithm believes you should be known for, Chris Reynolds. You get four. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, um... Is it Sherlock Holmes is up there somewhere? It is not. Oh, dear. Pride, Prejudice and Zombies? No. <laughs> Should be. Is not. <laughs> uh, the World's End. The World's End must be there somewhere. Yes, The World's End. You got one. Oh, The Crown. It's The Crown there. No. Can you believe it? 50 episodes. Considering how much you've worked on that, yeah. I mean, no, look how so. massive The Crown is at the moment. I know. And yeah, I would have thought that would probably be the top at the moment. So far, you're one for three. And, and I'll just, you've gotten your four guesses, or one and three. You've got your four guesses. I'm going to tell you what it thinks you should be known for. Your two episodes when Jack Ryan goes to London in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. All right, okay. The Conjuring 2. Oh, the Conjuring. Oh, yeah, The Conjuring was a good film, actually. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. And, That's yeah. a fun one. And The Nevers. Six episodes you did on The Nevers. Right, okay. Did well, those surprise uh, you? Yeah. I can't believe the Nevers, right? Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's always a guessing game with that. It's a mystery, some of these things. It really yeah, it is. is. I, it, it, is. It, it is one of the our very favorite movies around these parties, The World's End, though, the, the Edgar Wright work you did with Edgar Wright. And, and yeah, that was, it was a good film, that one was. It came out well in the end. Yeah, I think it did. Do you have any? I mean, I'd spin a little. I did 71 as well. Have you seen, I would have thought 71 might be up there. Have you ever seen 71? No, it's a really good a film. Another film about the IRA, funny enough, about the troubles set in, 19, in the the troubles. It's, it was is made on a pretty low budget, but it's actually a very good film. Uh, and there was a lot of special effects on it with burning cars and uh, all sorts of things happening. As uh, it tells the story of a young British soldier who gets caught uh, in a riot behind the lines in a riot, and he tries to escape. He's being chased by 
uh, members of the RA. Uh, and uh, it's about his story trying to get back to the lines and then seeing some pretty uh, uh, underhanded things that the British special services were doing over there as well. It's a, it's a really interesting film. It's a good film. Looks interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Definitely get that on the watch list. It's definitely worth a watch. It's worth a watch. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, kind of speaks to, uh, you know, in our uh, having a kind of a conversation with you before we uh, before we started, you talked about some of your uh, favorites that kind of inspired you in this world. Things like uh, Battle of Britain and. Yeah, and Battle of Waterloo and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, like these are are films that it's all about war. And so by nature of of the film, it's just like in Battle of Britain. I mean, so much of that is flying around and all of the the dogfights that they're having and just all of the different explosions, uh, you know, on the ground as, as planes are flying over. Amazing model sequences in it as well, of course. Yeah. Visual effects didn't exist, so everything had to be done physically. Uh, yeah, I, was, I watched it last night. I wish I had a better copy uh to watch so it wasn't very clean so i couldn't really tell like in a lot of the flying sequences or like am i looking at models or are these i mean oftentimes you can tell when it's real planes but when some of the the specific explosions in the sky and stuff yeah the crashing sequences and crashing in the sea and things like that i mean it's actually quite difficult to tell i've played some of those clips uh, a dozen times and uh, i've eventually i thought that's definitely a model but it is some of it still stands a good test of time really. oh yeah it really does i mean just solid work when when you would watch stuff like that like uh i mean i suppose there's kind of a, a especially now having worked in the business for so long but i suppose there's like a, you know two different ways you can look at it is like one like the way that the effects enhance the story and kind of do so much to kind of give the film exactly what they're trying to achieve. And then from your perspective, like what went into kind of coming up with that and, and creating that and like looking behind the scenes to see all those different pieces, do you find yourself still kind of like with those two mindsets as you're watching effects or have you been in the business so long that when you're watching effect sequences, you're just like, I, I can't get lost in the story anymore. I just see the effects. <laughs> No, I think I still watch the story. Yeah. Uh, but then there's every, every now and then there's a clip that I suddenly I'll look at and go, it's clever. How did they do that? Uh, I mean, I'm, one that springs to mind in, in uh, Battle of Britain is, uh, of course, the Spitfire coming across the field on fire. Uh, and it, it comes across the field towards the camera, then blows up and then carries on on fire. And, uh, I, I, I mean, I've played that several times and I'm convinced that's a full-size mock-up of a, of a, a Spitfire or a Hurricane. And it's it's all because when you look at it on fire later, you can see it's been made out of bits of plywood and bits of ordinary the way a set like a set construction would have built it. Yeah. So in in the early stages, before it actually explodes and catches light, you're you're it's, it looks like a real aircraft. So I do look at things and uh, and think, yes, how did they do that? Uh, and and not just old films. I mean, Fury, the film that's. Was out recently. It's a great film for the tank, special tank battle film. The explosions on the tanks are so terrific, and and the all the frenzy of war, the way it all cuts together. I think that's what makes it so good on on that particular sequence with the tank battle is uh, the way the cutting together and the speed of the cutting, and then of course the special effects enhance it all as well. Yeah, very much, and I, I think there's. There's a lot of, I suppose, as as kind of a, a person working in visual effects, when you're working on that sort of project, trying to make the effects realistic in the scope of the story that you're telling, you know, World War II tanks, we want to make sure that everything feels realistic in this scope, maybe a little bigger than 
you know, it, it's okay to be a little bigger in the scope of, you know, it's a movie. We're telling the story, we want it to be exciting and everything still. But obviously, that's a lot different than when you get to be a little more fantastical and you're dealing with dragons or aliens or things like that. And and you get to kind of really change things up. Do you revel in kind of jumping into those sorts of stories because it does allow you to do something a little more outside the box, I suppose you could say? I love it when it goes different, really. I mean, we did a, a thing for Sky a few years ago, which was Last Dragon Slayer and things like that. So that was that was quite a good. So there was like dragon flames bursts and all those sorts of things and and then uh, about four years ago i did a thing called electric dreams which is uh, another HETV type of thing it's a whole load of series it was a series of short stories because blade runner was actually a short story and it was uh and, and it was one of a group of about 25 short stories and electric dreams tied to start telling this all those all that group of 25 or so short stories but i think we only got as far as um telling the first six this was an this was an amazon thing right uh yeah it may have been amazon i think it was a, a I think when we did it it was a sort of sky okay it may yeah all right amazon. oh no it was amazon that was it yeah that was a really exciting thing to work on because i think we we shot each episode was six weeks to shoot it so you were shooting one episode and then lining up for the next episode and of course there was a lot of really unusual things happening in it all the time because it was a very sort of supernatural futuristic crazy thing that was going on yeah i i, I remember that one what an, it had an incredible cast but i don't i don't think they're doing any i think you're right i don't think they're doing anything more with it no they didn't do it anymore, which was a real shame because i think that like many times it's such a pity when when you do series you do a, uh, you do six episodes or something of what could possibly be 25 episode series and then they just finish it after the first six because they're not super duper popular but that quite often happens with a lot of series really things are not always massively popular in the first series uh and it quite often it needs the second series to to really get it geared in right for people to discover it i mean uh, look at look at black mirror right like uh, you know they had electric dreams had such a fantastic black mirror vibe which was already popular that it just felt like they they gave up a, a bit too soon and just based on philip k dick's shorts like just the fact well, that yes. you were yeah, i mean i i loved watching those i i had so much fun with that series and it was such a disappointment when it didn't keep going because i'm like there's so much more it was it was and it was really good fun to work on and it had some really nice cast and the crew very talented art department who were joining out the different sets of short notice and that was a really interesting thing to to do interesting job yeah for sure uh before we jump into our conversation about uh cinema paradiso i just want to Gage, we're, we're, as, as we record this, we're toward the end of 2023. What films from this past year stand out to you as like the, the films that uh, really kind of set a high mark in the world of visual effects? Do you have any particular favorites that you've seen this year? Not, not really, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the, uh, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, I've got to say, sorry. And I haven't seen Barbie, which are two of the biggest films this year. Uh, I don't know what special effects are on Oppenheimer so far. And I haven't, because Napoleon has only just come out, I haven't had a chance to go and see it, but I will go and see that gotcha. soon. So I can't really judge that one. But I would guess that's probably got some really good special effects in it. I mean, there's certainly... Especially the sorts of effects that would light you up. And it's filmed in the UK <laughs> with a lot... There's a lot of technicians here, special effects technicians, which are really good. I'm not so sure who the special effects supervisor is on it. I think it might be Neil Colbold, in which case he'd be really good. So Yeah. 
I mean, Ridley Scott and battle scenes, put those two things together. Inevitably, yeah. you're going to have fantastic things to watch. So a lot of really great things to watch in that one. I mean, I think like a lot of people now, I, I spend a lot of time watching stuff on all the streaming channels. Yeah, so, yeah right. Yeah, that's very true. It's like, like most people do, really. So, There's a, a glut of content. It's it's hard to it's hard to choose these days. Yeah, which is a good thing, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been watching the latest series of The Crown, which I which I think is really good. That's come out really well. What are the what what sort of work are they asking? Were they asking you to do on The Crown? Well, The Crown is. I mean, generally, we've got a couple of people on it all the time, so it's a bit of haze, a bit of rain here and there, and then we get the odd thing which is different like uh in the last series there's a whole lot of tin cans where the two princes are shooting tin cans off of a wall so we had to build a false wall top and with air rigs to blow tin cans in the air so that you could have artists at the same time delivering lines where there's aluminium tins flying around without and they're quickly resettable as well so i mean that was just one gag in the last series I, there, there's probably several others but there's a lot of it keeps us fairly busy even though it's not obvious what the special effects are in it really yeah and i see like there's a lot of that sort of uh when you look at the lineup of projects that you've worked on there's a lot of that that probably like uh victorian abdul i'm like oh okay well it's probably like weather effects somewhere in there things like that you know that that really kind of ties in but and other stuff too but i just like there is a lot of I think that's what's kind of so interesting about the world of visual effects is like it's not just special, special War of the Worlds and thing, yeah or spe- yeah there yeah there's not just like the big aliens or wars it's it's all of these little things yeah it covers everything from a bit of haze rain pra- uh, f- physical effects uh, mechanical rigs sometimes really unusual mechanical rigs to do all sorts of bits and pieces yeah right right well we should talk about all the unusual mechanical rigs in Cinema Paradiso am I right in another time. And another place, there was an enchanted village where the young and the young at heart shared their joys and dreams. Where a boy made mischief. And a young man found romance. And an old friend shared his magic with the town he loved. Every Saturday night they came to share the fantasy. They came for the thrills and the chills. The passion. The laughter. And all the kisses you never saw. Cinema Paradiso. Winner, special jury prize, Cannes Film Festival. Count on the the visual effects supervisor to bring just something really bombastic to the show. <laughs> tell you the, the flame sequence in it where the um, Alfredo is yes caught in the burning cinema is not particularly well done. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't spoil the film. The, the film is a brilliant, brilliant film. Well, okay, so let's let's start there. What What is it that drew you to this particular film? Do you remember? 
I remember about 20, 25 years ago or so, it was um, reviewed late night, night on a, a, one of the British um, sort of cinema f- a film sort of uh, review programs on BBC or something. And I didn't see it being reviewed, but I just remember them saying oh, it was a good film. And then about two or three years ago, I was flicking through Amazon, I think it was, and I suddenly saw it come up. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll play that film. And I played it. Uh, and it just was, I was just, this amazing film. It's very. It's, it's one of those films that's difficult to actually say straight away what the story is because there's so many different bits to the story going through the whole film. On the one hand, it's a story about a successful film director who is suddenly finds out late one night when he's in in uh, Rome that uh, an old friend of his from his village where he grew up has died, and he then goes back to uh, he then goes back in his mind and imagines when he was a, an eight or nine-year-old boy in the village in Sicily about his friendship and his love of the cinema with the local film projectionist, a uh, guy called Alfredo. And it's Alfredo that you find out has died. The story goes through Toto, who is the, the young boy, and his story uh, as he's growing up and his love of the cinema. Alfredo then has an accident in the projectionist booth because Alfredo is the local cinema projectionist and he's t- he's blind, and then Toto takes over the cinema projectionist job and runs it. And then it then leads into him having uh, the love story of him and a local girl, and uh, it mixes in with the local village life and the all the scenery around the local village and all the characters in the village all going to the cinema and all the, lo- all the films in the cinema. It's got some brilliant images in it and a great story running through it as well. That's, that's, I think, the thing that I find so kind of magical about it. I mean, it is really about this, this young kid and his, and finding this passion at such a young age for cinema and the joy of not just watching the movies, but really kind of like, he's always been kind of, I mean, as a, you know, as a, as a kid interested in the behind the scenes, but in, in the world of the village, it's, that really means the projectionist and the booth and the idea of like, cutting scenes out when the the priest doesn't want certain scenes included and all of that sort of stuff. That, that of course, uh, is a quite an important part of the story, yeah. uh, but you never really find that out until the end. Exactly, right, uh, right. That the priest has the scenes cut out, the kissing scenes cut out right. <laughs> uh, of the films because he doesn't think that the uh, that the villagers should be watching these films with kissing scenes in right. them. Right, too pornographic, yeah. <laughs> too pornographic, yeah. And then, of course... As the film goes on, that's almost the final ending of the film, is where you suddenly, Alfredo's widow gives Toto the uh, an old film reel, which he then plays, and in it is all those kissing clips played over the, with the music of Moraconi's amazing music over it all, which, uh, which is just like, it's, I mean, it's probably one of the best film endings ever. And such a celebration of not just cinema, but just like, it's all clips of like passion and love. And so it's, it really becomes like this love for the passion really. And and that's, I think what makes that, that final uh, watching that final montage just so magical because it really kind of celebrates that. And the other bit I liked about it as well is because during most of the early part of the film, of uh, course, apart from the very opening sequence, uh, Toto is a poor uh, a boy whose father was killed in the war and his mother's struggling to bring him up. And it's about his uh, him finding uh, an escapism, which was the cinema in, in the local village. But then right at the end, when that clip is played at the end, you see Toto going into the film production company in Rome and handing the film to a projectionist, asking him to play it. And people coming up to him and going, 
oh, your new film is wonderful. It's been, uh, uh, we're really, everybody's pleased with your new film. It wants, we want to release it early and everything. And he's sort of semi dismissive because he wants to go and walks down the corridor to go and see the film being played uh, in the projection, in the uh, screening theatre. So, and then you see that he's successful, and it's just like, wow, he's successful. He showed everybody. That's a, so that's a wonderful thing as well. I mean, the, it's a poor boy comes good. That's right, right. So there's so many aspects to the, to the stories in the film. You know what I think I, I found watching it last night that uh, that hit me for the first time in a long time is that it's not just a, about love of film. It's about love of mechanical film. And I think that dates the movie really positively for me that this the, the nostalgia trip is these guys love touching film. Right. They love touching and cutting. And that that to me is like that visceral satisfaction of watching them turn the knobs and open and shut the and, and re, uh, re-spool the film and all of those things. Him sitting in front of the candle in his house, like, you know, looking at each of the frames yeah, that were cut. Oh. There's some lovely bits of cinematography in it as well, with just bits like where he's looking at the film in front of the candle. He can't even afford oil lamps or anything. He has a candle. They have a candle. And then, and then the 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 sequence, you, you know, uh, as they as they realize what a gift film is to the community uh, that they'd known all along, but they that they turn that return that gift by just adjusting the mirror and projecting the film onto the building yeah. across the square. It's it is just uh, it, it, and it, all the local villagers all come cheering. out in the square to watch it being projected, and and the, they sit the way that yeah. the way that's shot, the way that everybody stands in a perfect square as if they're in a theater right they they all line up perfectly it's it is uh it, it, visually it's just in, incredibly touching and then toto turns around to sit with a big grin on his face to alfredo to say uh, that's brilliant alfredo you know and because we've got to also mention how amazing the young toto is in the film i mean i can't remember hang on this is where you, you need to uh salvatore Ca- Casio, yeah, Salvatore Casio. Yeah, he, yeah. he apparently he grew up. He was he lived very close to the actual village it was filmed in, and uh, he was given the part because he looked so good. But he's just so brilliant playing all the roles as a child actor. You'll never you never really think this is a child actor doing these bits. You, it's all so natural. His look round and all his looks, everything is. He, I think that's another reason that the film's so successful because he holds half of the film together so well really as the child toto yeah really right right it's like when he's trying to wink (laughs) like (laughs) there's three people that play that role of course because there's the child there's the uh successful film director and then there's the sort of teenager and and his story is largely the one with the love story where he meets the the beautiful girl and 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 that whole connection and it it was a very interesting I'd kind of forgotten that element of the story about how, I mean, he's a typical boy growing up. He has this draw to this beautiful new girl in town and all of this sort of stuff. But I had forgotten how much of uh, how important the element of what Alfredo already sees in Toto that Toto doesn't recognize in himself but he is the driving force that says, don't stay in this town. You know, blonde girls are always trouble. Like all of these different things that he keeps kind of pushing with Toto because he kind of recognizes there's more to you. You have this drive. You need to get out of this town and pursue your passions. And I think that's such a key part of the story. Don't be like me. Don't stay here in the cinema booth. Get out of this town. I don't want to see you anymore. And then, of course, towards the end of the film, you see 
him leaving the town on the train uh, and the, and Alfredo's in the station and with uh, with Toto's mother and his sister waving goodbye uh, as the train pulls out. And then you've got the shot looking over Toto leaning out the window as he's leaving everybody behind. That's, that's a great shot by itself. But yeah, he's, he's the, like the driving force. He was a sort of father replacement figure. Truly. That pushed Toto into his success, really, which was is another lovely story by itself, really. Which version did you see, the 155-minute version or the 173-minute version? For our purposes here, I, I ended up watching what I the Blu-ray that I have, which is actually about the two-hour version, which I think was the initial international cut that we first got released here in 88. And I thought when I had it, I was, I was talking to Pete about this before we recorded, I thought I had bought it after they had released the extended like three hour director's cut. And so I thought that that was the version I had. So when I put it in, I was a little surprised that I only had the two hour version, but so I only watched the two hour, but I have seen the full, uh, the full three hour version. Yeah. Well, and I think this is, I've only seen the, the uh, two hour version. I've never seen the director's cut. And so for, for me, and this is, this is what I'm, I'm most curious about for you too, is I totally appreciate you know, getting Toto out of town. And I appreciate all of that. But the relationship of Toto and Elena, their their relationship feels unfinished narratively. Like, I, it just feels like an abandoned thread. And yeah. I, I don't think they should have ended up together. I don't think any of that. But I feel like it's just like, oh, woof, dropped in the wind in the movie. And I'm, I, I recognize that something in the director's cut resolves some of those, some of those threads that I, yeah. I feel unrequited. And I'm curious how that hits you. Like, what is the complete movie for you? Well, actually, if you watch the 155 minute version the two hour version and you can be bothered to watch the whole of the credits funny enough right at the end of the whole of the credits because the the credits play with little tiny four or five second clips of the film through them but the last two clips uh one of those is a young very young uh elena looking around like that and then it's a cl- another a cut of toto in a cafe the next clip is a cut of toto in a cafe doing a double take round like that as if like he's just seen something so that uh, <laughs> so that like actually hints to what the 173 minute version is like that it's it's obviously he he sees a young girl in town which looks like young elena uh, he follows her in his car goes to her house sees her then come out with a, with her father figure which he recognises as a friend of his from school, from his college days, and so he he then phone he then finds the telephone number, phones up the telephone number of the house, gets through and speaks to the uh, Elena herself on the phone and says like hi it's Toto here like and they meet up that evening and she sort of basically says that I uh, I have a life here now I I can't sort of abandon it and everything but I did always love you and it was Alfredo that told me to leave. And if I loved you, not to contact you again, because you have a you have a destiny more than any of us. Huh. And and I also recall like the the bit where she did say, and I did leave my, but I, I couldn't help but not leave my address for you, and I left it written on a piece of paper at the uh, at the theater, which uh, you know I guess uh, you never saw. And then he goes back and he does actually find it in that mess of a projection booth. It's it's a really, I mean it. 
it is a beautiful end to kind of the the love story. We kind of get a we do get a sense of closure there, and I do really like that version. But after rewatching this one, I I find that the way that she just doesn't end up showing up in that in that last part ends up working quite well for him for his story to almost like he learns a lesson like. I, I do need to just listen to kind of Alfredo and move on with my life and not be stuck on something like this. And and so I, I still think that it works really well uh, in the version that exists or the shorter version. Oh, I think 150. I mean, I, I just can't, I'm not sure which version I prefer. Actually, I think in some ways I do prefer the two hour version because if you play it right the way through to the end of the credits, the double take, because sort of could 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 lead on to anything really. It could lead on to he's seen something that he really likes, or he's or he's seen Elena Elena again, and that's, that maybe something is going to happen between them. Whereas in some ways the the the, the longer version, the three hour version is, I find it a bit sad really that he never really that he doesn't really get together with her. You sort of want him to, really, don't you, really? Yeah, maybe that's that makes it worse, right? <laughs> that's like, yeah. you know, punctuation on the reason why they chose to cut that that entire sequence. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I got to ask, you said, as we just started this conversation, you said the, the fire sequence, this is our effect sequence, right? Was not particularly <laughs> good. I, I need to have you weigh in. Why, why is it not good? What are you looking at? I think it it just needed more proper flames coming out of the building, whereas it's done with just smoke, and they tried to do it with some rather crude lights at the back flickering, which was very poor. It let, let it down badly. Funny enough, the internal fire sequence where Toto is trying to rescue Alfredo and is shooting through flames and smoke, that's actually not bad. All that works quite well. But the wider sequences in the village square with the flames flickering or the supposed burning of the flames in the wide shot of the theatre, of the of cinema theatre. It just looks terrible. They let, let themselves down badly there, really. Sure, yeah. So. Toward the end of the film, as uh, he's come back, they actually demolish the theatre. Yeah. In a scene like this, obviously you can just hire some a demolition team to kind of knock a building down, but I mean, I, I'm assuming that the, the, uh, vi- the special effects team is still involved in in part kind of keeping it safe and everything right i think that may have been a large model actually i've played it a couple of times and need to play it again but when i last played it i sort of came to the conclusion it might be a large model that was used gotcha really so they actually i I didn't get the impression that they demolished an actual building okay the town square gotcha there's a lot of like foreground sort of explosions coming up to start the thing going which looks a little bit silly, uh, but then the, when the once the dust cloud uh, sort of develops, it sort of you then see the building behind suddenly Ball, disappear right. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. a separate shot, <laughs> which is where I think it then cuts to a model shot. Yeah, really. right, right, right. So the model shot's very good, but the initial sort of starting of the explosions not particularly good. I, I mean, it probably would have been to do it properly. It would have meant building a full size uh, theatre fr- sort of frontage. On a on a lot somewhere, with matching the surrounding buildings and demolishing that or blowing that up for real. I mean, cutting out the bottom section and letting it drop on itself. So, which which I get probably wasn't possible in the in the actual square they filmed in because they filmed in a an original medieval square in an Italian village in Sicily, which 
is the actual village where the uh, director grew up as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading about that, that he, like, it was his hometown that, that they did all yeah. this in, which I thought was kind of cool. He wrote the story as well. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, he, uh, Tornatori is an interesting director. I've only seen, uh, I've not seen a lot of his films. I think I've only seen this one and then The Star Maker, which which came out a few years later, but uh, has not been a filmmaker I've seen a lot of of his works. I miss like The Legend of 1900 and Milena. I've heard some pretty good things about those. Uh, have you seen many of his other films? No, I haven't seen any of his other work. I mean, I think it's, this. sometimes it's like when you have a, a director who really, uh, believes in something close to their heart. I mean, it's probably based slightly on on when he was younger himself. In that, in that, it town. has that feeling uh, for sure. Yeah, the local cinema and his love of it all. And uh, sometimes you get the best stories when they're written from the heart, don't you? Really, and, uh, close to home. Watching this again, I couldn't help but find a, a kind of a parallel with the Fablemans, just in the sense of a young kid yes. drawn to cinema and the idea of, you know, what was up on that big screen and what you could do with it and everything. And I, I thought that was kind of a an interesting little comparison of like this young kid who grows up to a kind of become a filmmaker. And I that I maybe that's why it feels a little biographical. I again I'm not exactly sure how much biographical details from Tornatori's own life are in here. But there's some great images though, isn't there? That the the projector projects out doesn't just project out of a hole in the wall. It projects out of through a giant great lion mask. Yeah, roaring <laughs> lion mask, which is interesting concept by itself really it's like this this great statement on the wall and the, here comes the film it's coming out for you the lion is sort of spitting it out across the screen i always wish that more movie theaters would do that and incorporate something really interesting like a lion's roaring mouth over over where their projection uh, where they're projecting from some sort of gargoyle yeah right right and then because the whole village comes together in the thin in the cinema to watch these films You've got the, the rich people above in the gallery and then the poor people below and all the young kids and the whole village is playing out there, really sold. And we get to watch it out play out over time. I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, as the war is progressing. And so you're seeing some interesting elements of, you know, soldiers off at war. You have one family who's kind of looked down upon because, the you know, as they say, oh, he's the communist or whatever. You have a love story that develops over between a couple people in the theater. Uh, I like that in the back, different during different periods, there's actually a prostitute who works in a back room back there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's yeah. like a wide variety of characters that we meet through uh, through just watching them. And that's yeah. this is one of those stories that gives you a real sense of the community over time with like we're just getting to know these people and we spend time with them and really are drawn to their love of the stories that are that they're watching up on the big, big screen, whether it's romantic or whether they're all crying yeah. or the big actions. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, or, or, or always fun when they're all like booing or something. Like there's plenty yeah, of those yeah. too. And then when the cinema burns down, uh, uh, it just so happens that one of the local guys in the village has won the national yeah, lottery. Right, right. So he decides to spend his money on rebuilding the cinema. So he then becomes the sort of the big cinema boss. 
And it's a beautiful cinema. Right? Yeah, <laughs> he does great. Before he was just a, an ordinary person in the village, and now now he's important. He's he runs the cinema where everybody comes to. Especially yeah. because he's the one who got to make the choice. We're not. We're gonna not cut the kisses out anymore. Yeah. and just like the reaction <laughs> when the people are like, "Oh my god, I can't believe what I'm seeing! <laughs> I'm finally <laughs> seeing a kiss." on the screen and everybody is like all the boys are tissing in their mouths <laughs> right and that old lady is like oh my god yeah no it was it's very fun to watch well and uh, and what a what a wonderful again the nostalgia trip about the mechanics of film production uh, film presentation when they have they have to exchange reels back and forth by bike <laughs> as the movies are playing between two theaters i must say i do i do miss sort of not having film cameras on jobs any longer I, I used to, even though I obviously I didn't work in the camera team, I I I, I used to love seeing the the reels being changed and then reloading the magazines in the bags and it was that whole process of it all really and the it, the clapperboard they still obviously we still use the clapperboards but and then it just had more of a real meaning then each each take because and the film was rolling through it was so deliberate you cut the cameras up shoot something and then at the end of the day they take the the memory cards out and download them in a van somewhere and somebody sits three hours while they download everything. So it's not quite the same really any longer. Not really. Yeah. It feels like the stakes were higher. Yeah. Backing up the negatives and sending them off the runner into, into the film uh, uh, processing uh, labs. We also get the kind of the evolving history of, uh, of film, which, you know, some people may not know too much about, but the idea that, in the early days of film, it was like a silver nitrate, and it was very flammable. It was incredibly flammable, and you had to be super careful. and And we kind of get that evolution shown in the film because there's that part where he's holding up a strip of film with a flame under it, trying to show yeah. to show uh, Alfredo. Look, yeah, they yeah. Believe it, and people couldn't believe it. It wasn't flammable anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And because because Alfredo is sort of wishing that that had been around when he had his accident. Exactly, so, yeah, yeah. Because it's ironic that really uh, the, the, the village projectionist becomes blind and uh, and can't see anything that he's projecting anymore. In fact, in the, in the three-hour version, uh, when uh, Elena goes up to see Alfredo in the booth, Alfredo's sitting there at the projector with the film playing and just going through, and she's talking to him, and he, that's when he's telling her, uh, leave leave Toto by himself. Uh, he has not, he has destiny, and Alfredo can't even see the film. He's just sitting there listening to the film run through the projector, uh, which is a sad image, really. It, it is, but I, I liked the way that they. It's almost like this hint of like this magical realism that they play with him at some points, like when he's sitting there, and this is after he's already blind, but he's just like, uh, the film's out of focus. And, and yeah, you know, yeah. That, of course it was, it's like, okay. And Toto's like, how did you know what's going on? Yeah. Very fun. Beautiful. Yeah. Love letter. It, it really is a love letter to, uh, to film. And I think yeah. that's one of the things that, um, I, I think has just connected people to it for such a long time. And it's not just a film. It's just about like his message at the end, like make sure whatever you end up doing that you love it. And I think that is such a great message. And again, not just for people who are working in the film industry, but whatever it is you're doing, like find that passion in your life and just and stick with it. You know, you're never going to be bored. You'll always be happy. And always be fulfilled as well. And fulfillment doesn't always come with money, although it is quite useful to have it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> a useful Can't tool. Help. Can't help. <laughs> I'm not going to turn it down. But <laughs> but actually, I mean, I go and do a few talks in schools here and there. 
I mean, if I manage to find the time, and that's some of the things I say uh, when people are asking me about the business, what I love about the business, and it's just like that fulfillment of actually making something. You, uh, I feel I'm making something that certainly with, with some of the stuff I've done, uh, hopefully will be seen in 100 years' time still. People will still be looking back at it, really. If you look at a lot of films, I mean, some of them, films like Ben-Hur, which is, I'm not sure how old that is now. It must be coming up for was, 75 years. Yeah, it's 50, it's 59, it's still, so. Still a, a, a good watch, yeah. I mean, it's still. Yeah, and again, just how big, especially like those Cecil B. DeMille films, just so big. Mm. I mean, it's just really impressive, so. Andy, uh, we love this movie. How did it do at award season? Did everybody else love it as much as we did? It was a much beloved film. 25 wins with 32 other nominations. And you have to remember at the time, like this was the short version of the movie. So people loved it yeah. just as much as they ended up loving the uh, longer versions later. At the Oscars, this film won Best Foreign Language Film. At the David Di Donatello Awards, which is uh, Italy's, essentially their Oscars, Tornatori was nominated for Best Director, but lost to Armano Olmi for The Legend of the Holy Drinker, which sounds like a great film. I need to see that one. It was nominated for Best Film, but also lost to The Legend of the Holy Drinker. Ennio Morricone's score won Best Music. Uh, it was nominated for Best Producer, but lost to Filiberto Bandini for uh, Karol Gorbachev. And uh, Pupella Maggio was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Athena Cenci in Compagni di Scola. Well, all right. Uh, I, I, those are some sad losses at the D- D- Donatello Awards. Well, it just makes me, I really need to find The Legend of the Holy Drinker now. <laughs> the Legend of the Holy Drinker. I, I feel like that's the one that's going to, that's like the 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 uh, key that's going to unlock a lot of things for us in movies. Exactly. Is that we have to see that movie. Um, how to do it at the box office to make any money, this little tiny baby film? Well, Tornatori had a relatively small budget for this lengthy film. I'm not sure what it was in Italian currency at the time, but it translates to $5 million or $12.85 million in today's dollars. The movie opened November 17th, 1988 in Italy and actually was received poorly at the box office. So Tornatori cut the film down to just over two hours for the international release, which was received well. As we just said, the film won the special jury prize at Cannes in 1989 before opening limited February 2nd, 1990 here in the States. It maxed out at 124 screens the 13th week and did relatively well its theatrical run, going on to earn $12.4 million domestically and $3.4 million internationally for a total gross of $40.5 million in today's dollars. That includes its director's cut re-release, uh, it seems, uh, but it just goes to show that the draw it does have a draw for audiences. With such a long running time, though, the film lands with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just $160,000. Still a success overall. I just found on, on Giuseppe Tornatore's page, he directed a documentary on Ennio Morricone, and I can't find any place to watch it. It feels like a thing that I need to have in my life. It took me ages to find the three-hour version of the film. It's not very easy to find some of this stuff, really. Hard, hard to track down some of these. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Frustrating. It's like a treasure hunt by itself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I found it, yes. Right, exactly. It's it. He did. Uh, he did end up. Tornatore did work with Morricone until Morricone passed away. But uh, just Ennio Morricone. I mean, we've already talked the about how great his music is, but just stunning. And then this was the, perhaps the only one that I've noted where his son actually comes in and and does one of the themes, which I was like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. And I haven't followed his son to see if he kind of continued in the composing world, but 
It's, I mean, the music here is just, it's just top notch. If you took the film by itself, it's a terrific film anyway. And then with one of the best film scores ever overlaid over the whole top of it, it's like, it's like, yeah. That's why I think it makes it such a special film, really. Truly, truly, truly. Well, Chris, I mean, this has been such a fantastic conversation uh, about your career and everything and uh, this fantastic film. Yeah, thank you so much. Do you have a, a place online where we should direct people to go check out and see what you're up to? I mean, I know they can look at your website to kind of check out your reel and everything. Uh, sometimes I'm a bit wary because otherwise I just get so much post. It would. I, I used to advertise a lot. And I've actually my show my uh, my uh, 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 website is actually quite out of date now because I haven't bothered updating it to be perfectly honest because I don't need to because I get the work anyway. And all I found was that I just get so much post I just can't cope with it all. I mean I'm busy enough with the job without answering people's questions all the time because I uh, one of the things that I probably in the UK that I was most famous for for a while was a thing called Robot Wars. I don't know if you've ever seen... I, I've heard of it. You've heard of um, it, yeah. Well, actually, it started in the US, and then it was uh, the format was taken to the UK by a, a, a producer. And it was basically these little... I think you guys know it as BattleBots. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, that's, and yeah. Uh, in the UK, it became a thing called Robot Wars, and they had, they had their own house robots in Robot Wars, so in the UK version. So they all had their own personalities, and and there were like five or six of them, and they I designed them, and I had a team that built them, and they literally became personalities, and, and they were famous by themselves. <laughs> they were people. It was like people. They were on t-shirts, on bedspreads, on socks, boys' socks and slippers and shoes. They were on cornflake packets. They were on everything, and I would be interviewed like on on the, on daytime TV and. Uh, and uh, get recognised in supermarkets and things, and uh, so I, I had a, about two years of mini fame. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so uh, I mean, that died. That's obviously all past now because it's now uh, coming up to twenty years since the last uh, bit of it's made. But, uh, I remember now. I, I I have it, and it was this because this was Clarkson uh, was a presenter on this show, right? Clarkson was the very first presenter, the very first series. Yep. Uh, but it became super famous in the second series onwards. Yeah, and the, the robots, like especially Killalot, it literally became a it became a household name. That is and so funny. I'd go into pubs and be sitting in pubs with friends, and I'd hear people sitting on tables next door discussing what but what robots they were going to build, and <laughs> and oh, I'd get those house robots, and I'd be sitting there thinking, God, it's. I mean, it was an amazing thing because what I liked about it most of all was it actually encouraged young people to be interested in engineering. Sure, it made engineering cool is what it did, which has always been one of my big sort of bugbears and trying to encourage people to, to of all sexes to get involved in that type of thing. And it did. It did a really good job for the seven or six series it's ran for. Fantastic. Uh, well, obviously, there's still some some thread of that because, I mean, there are still like robotics clubs and all that sort of thing in, in schools. Yeah. And so I think that there's still a yeah. And BattleBots in the States, I understand, is doing really well. But they don't have... Uh, they don't have their own house robots anymore. The reason we had them in the first series was because uh, most of the contestants' robots were absolutely useless, and we'd have had no show. <laughs> there was no competition. We'd have, we'd have no show at all if we hadn't have had the house robots. These house robots could move around. I mean, some of the contestants' robots were so bad that we had to pull them on fishing line to make them look as if they were doing something. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. The other robot would go slamming into them, and at least you can, once, then you can have a bit of a... 
like with one robot pushing the other one around, you'd feel that something was actually happening. Yeah, right. Oh, funny. So it was dreadful in the first series. The Clarkson series was was dreadful. It wasn't Clarkson's fault. It was just that people just weren't up to building a hundred kilo robots sure. that could drive around and slam axes into the into <laughs> somebody else. So. Well, he needed to be busy blowing up cars, though. It, that was. <laughs> He had other things going on. So, so funny. Yeah, so funny. Yeah, we've progressed from there. Oh, so, my yeah. gosh. It's almost like a world now, but funny. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, I mean, Chris, thank you again so much for joining us here. We really, really appreciate it. No, no, good, good to see you. And uh, yeah, it's a real treat. Yeah, stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And for everyone else out there, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you liked the show, and certainly hope you like the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chonk Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we certainly appreciate it if you could drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. (laughs) 